I want you to imagine voting. I want you to imagine going to the polls, standing in the polls, pulling a lever, having the state or the city or the county vote for one thing, and then having the legislature overthrow that to put in a different result. I want you to imagine a legislature that basically handpicked its districts and no court, no president, no governor, nothing could stand in its way. I want you to imagine a democracy in name only. I want you to imagine what that looks like in a world where these people are going to age in a world where they're going to become outmoded technologically and culturally. I want you to imagine all this is a very realistic possibility starting next fall. I want you to imagine a world where the business community and the businesses and industries in this state simply cannot relate to an elderly class of politicians who rule over our lives and a citizenry that cannot vote them out of office because their votes simply don't matter. This is the furthest, and but still a possible outcome, but the furthest extreme outcome of a case called Moore versus Harper, which is going to be decided in October next year. King Williams is a journalist. He also used to run two different nonprofits around elections and getting people to vote in the state of Georgia. He is a very knowledgeable person who talks to historians and politicians and lawyers in his job as a reporter. And I wanted him on my show to talk about Moore versus Harper. He was very gracious enough to volunteer approximately an hour of his time last Saturday. And this is, for the most part, our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. I am here with the great and powerful King Williams, <laughs> and he graciously volunteered part of his Saturday afternoon to talk about Moore versus Harper. And it, this is right up there with, if they go all the way with it, it's right up there with uh, Marbury versus Madison. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, you name it. This is a big. This is a big one. Uh, so why don't we sort of get into what it is, and then why this might be a problem? Well, if they go one way, it will be a problem. I don't care who you vote for. Um, so why don't you take it away? Okay. Hey. So what's going on, everyone? Uh, thank you all for listening to my good buddies uh ben's podcast today i want to say one thing in particular before we get started i am not a lawyer um so i think it's important especially not a constitutional lawyer what i am is a journalist and somebody who talks to a lot of lawyers and a lot of people who are constitutional 
scholars and people who also study the Supreme Court. Um, and I say that because as we get into some things, just in case it's like I might get some of the nuance wrong or some of the legislation, not exactly right. I want to make sure we have that just ahead. History is typically my purview. Um, and history says a lot about where we are now. Um, and in the cases that we're going to be talking about today, there is a lot of historical precedent, precedent rather, in the text itself and the things outside of the text. So if y'all get mad, don't get mad at Ben, get mad at me is what I'm trying to say, long story short. So please don't get mad at Ben again, get mad at me. All right, that's how I wanted to start that off. Okay. Um, basically, from what I from what I read, I've spent a few, I'm taking some time out of my schedule and read um, opinions and uh, journalists and things. This arises out of a opinion or out of a, not an opinion, but out of a doctrine that says essentially a state legislature can uh, basically go rogue. It can basically be do things against the legis the court or its own state court. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so okay, just to be clear, we're talking about which case first. Uh, Moore versus Harper, uh, the the rogue legislator, uh, the rogue legislature opinion or doctrine was sort of given a voice in Bush v. Gore in 2000, um, which essentially said the legislature could, dict as the Constitution says, it can dictate the time, place, and manner of an election. So what they're doing is they're, they're getting really creative with the manner part of the time, place, and the manner. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah. part of it. Um, okay. Yeah. I'll say that's part of it. Okay. Okay. And from what I've read, it's basically a spectrum that the court could decide, right? It's not, you know, they could they could say, well... You could throw out all federal, or you could go rogue on all federal elections, or some of the federal elections, or, or some of the, you know, things like that. Um, and like I was saying off air, the thing that struck me in reading all this is nobody really knows what would happen. Yeah, I think so. There's a couple ways we can kind of parse it. There's a macro version and a micro version of that. If you want to get into that, okay, uh, I do. Or we can yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So uh, the reason why a lot of people, and I would say mostly like Democrats and people in general on the left, are really concerned is the the culture shifts. It's a combination of both cultural shifts of the last, say, seven or eight years, really. Um, and then also the last four or so years with the number of changes to both voting and representation. And so these are really three things, I'm sorry, I was saying two, but three things that are more macro level that people are concerned about. And what they're really concerned about is this idea of a one party system in the US. And I know for some people on face value, that actually sounds terrifying. And I think it's important to say when we say one party rule, um, unfortunately, I think for your more conservative listeners and your more Republican-leaning listeners, this is probably the part where they're not going to like me. It's really being done by one particular party. 
And I do think, I've talked to a lot of Republicans about this, and while they are concerned, considering who are the people passing these legislatures, they're okay with it because it's still retained to their power, even though the people who are drafting the laws, running for office, aren't necessarily people that they feel comfortable with being in the party with, right? And mm-hmm. so, effectively, it's not just, I think, on a surface level, you could have this thing where because of so many culture wars going on and because of so many changes to both political representation in terms of gerrymandering and where we stand, and also just like changes to the electoral process, either banning drop boxes, trying to you know, keep certain people from voting or making it hard for certain people to vote. Mm. On the surface, it seems like, oh, well, this is a really good thing because, you know, for whatever reason, these people don't deserve to vote or these people or whatever, right? It's always these people. And not understanding, seeing the four from, from the trees are the people who are pushing and the people who are okay with that are going to also do this to you. It's just a matter of time. And so I think that's mm-hmm. something I, I try to talk to a lot more people who are more entrenched in the Republican Party. A lot of them are like, well, you know, it's going to be all right. It's not that bad. We're only, you know, we're just t- t- taking a few minor things. And some are like, you know, it's cool. We need mm-hmm. to have this. Like the country is going in the wrong direction. We need to control it. Not understanding that the people who are passing these things are also going to do much worse uh and like Mm -hmm. and this is where i bring up the part about history history says so right and right and i want to talk directly about one thing because i feel like i'm i'm kind of speaking around about it sure uh when we talk about one particular more versus harper this is a case coming out of north carolina the supreme court will hear in the the fall of this year it's Mm -hmm. effectively going to do something that i think even it delegitimizes this supreme court in a way that i think that while they're okay with it right now because it's going to give their political party the opportunity to either reinstate Mm -hmm. maps that have either been thrown out in in federal courts Mm -hmm. or in state supreme courts over its gerrymandering gerrymandering meaning that you know you draw a district that is for political representation and especially many places in the south or many places that have republican leading government governments have really done a job this last term of removing black voters or would be democratic voters, right? From Mm. office or reducing Mm. their powers, either through Mm. these maps. The other half of that is Mm. when you see what's going on with the Moore versus Harper case, and you look at kind of the breakdown of what's been happening the last six or so weeks on the Supreme court with every week, it's like a major decision coming down on the Mm. line of the six, three, it sets a tone that this is also going to be struck down. The reason why this is important is, while a gerrymandered map, and for most people, these these political maps run 10 years, that's effectively 10 years where you could have a scenario where one party, more particularly the Republican Party, and then even within that Republican Party, the most worst acting, worst thinking, worst behaving mm. people or the, are now the leaders. Because, mm. and I've seen this now, especially if you look at a state like, I think Virginia is a good example, right? I know everybody tries to focus on Texas where you had that race, the, gov- the Republicans won the top three seats in the state of Virginia the first time since 2005 or so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the platforms that they ran on, the candidates they ran on, were so in line with both the Trumpism that a lot of Republicans say they're not necessarily comfortable with, or is really adjacent to a lot of just like the right-wingness that a lot of conservatives say that they're not okay with. But these are the mm-hmm. people who ran for office. So you could have this thing as, well, not only you get rid of Democratic votes, but you also start putting in people who don't even match the Republican Party that you win. And I think that it's one of the biggest threats to long-term democracy is mm. you don't 
have to worry about like I know Democrats they're, they're spending way too much time being upset about what if Trump comes back, what if Trump comes back. You should be more concerned now that there will be a thousand Donald Trumps across America. What I mean by that is people who are willing to subvert democracy, people who are willing to write out certain people from the political process, and then people who effectively have created districts that allow for only the most extreme candidates to win because now you kind of set a precedent. The other issue when it comes to Moore versus Harper is when it comes to reinstating these gerrymandered maps, uh, on average, it takes 10 years to re- re- to replace. There could be easy with the stroke of the pen within the Supreme Court to say these are the permanent maps, right, of political representation. And so that becomes the other issue because the Supreme Court, despite what they have said and, you know, interviews or depositions Mm -hmm. have voted along almost, almost exclusively along whatever the most ardent conservative position is. Right. And. I think that kind of it gets into something else that we're talking about, too. But I want to kind of pause right here because I feel like that's a lot going on. And maybe your listeners want to be like, what is this man talking about? Yeah. So that's kind of where we are. Well, to me, I mean, to me, I, I pull back even further than that. Um, so I since college, um, I've become much more interested in. Uh, like the causes of the French Revolution, the causes of different revolutions that everybody studies in school, right? At least in this country. And one of the root causes of like the French Revolution was like the, I don't mean like the common people, but like even the royals under the king actually thought their political system was a basket case. And to me, if you go all the way with Moore versus Harper, you would squarely put this country which is the second or third largest economy on earth into a political system right out of the middle ages. Yeah. And that's not a good idea. <laughs> right. I think it's important to you the second largest economy. Well, we're still first. China will eventually take us this decade. It's just more people. It's not like a consumption yeah. thing. Well, on a good day, it's it, we're either the second or third largest economy on earth. But yeah. <laughs> You know? Like, and so that's what I'm, I think, I, to your point too, but then you're also the second largest democracy, um, open democracy mm. next to India, right? Which has its, which mm. is having not exactly the same issues as America, but a similar issue of extremism right. and one particular political party trying to usurp all the other parties from taking power, right? So right. I think that, and Brazil's going through, so, so you got to think about the, the US, Brazil, India, places with mm. well over 200 million something people, um, Mm. who can vote like who effectively are the largest like democracies in the world and they're all having some general threat i think mm. the u.s one makes it more because the u.s for the last let's say since the end of world war ii hasn't seen as the gold standard for the world for not only upholding democracy but bringing others yeah. into democracy and i think that's very important that we have both parts upholding democracy and bringing other people into it and mm. the last five years or so have really been a black eye on the, on the brand of the U.S. to the point where I think that the average person in America doesn't fully understand what that means. Like it's different. We, we right. went from the gold standard to the bronze within five years, and we see how other countries now even have respected U.S. doctrine. I know a lot of people are getting on Joe Biden, uh, and I think some of that is mm-hmm. generally valid. But I do think even the representation of Donald Trump, and I think that one of the, the things I talk to conservatives about in general is like. Donald Trump's presidency was not seen very positively by the rest of the world. I know 
those who are super engulfed and like taking the country back were seeing it something differently. But the rest of the world perceived the U.S. as backsliding, not only in democracy, but just the, the brand itself. And now you've gotten to the point where you have backsliding for four years to now where you have a Joe Biden presidency where people are effectively either usurping the president and his party or they see them as weak. And so mm-hmm. when you talk about things like totalitarianism or the rise of fascism, those two mm-hmm. things are very common in that. And this Supreme Court and this doctrine that they are pushing now, this thing called independent state legislature, is one in the many of things that seems to really be hurting the U.S. in actuality, but also the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody who's Black, who can be, who studies history, I understand that there is a way to be like, you love America, but you also want to generally adequately critique and hold America to the promises and the history that either has been told or hasn't been uh, told Mm -hmm. and the promises, right? So I think it's important to be like, hey, I can love America, but I can also be like, there is X, Y, Z that isn't good about America currently, and we need to address that. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things with independent state legislature doctrine, which is the thing that we're really kind of getting at with Harper, Mm -hmm. uh, Moore versus Harper, is that it's just the idea of, to your point, if a legislator just doesn't like the result of something, particularly an election or um, a case, right? Really, I think it's going to really be in the case part of it uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to like things, cases, I'm going to be clear, court cases, particularly around gerrymandering or people removing people's opportunities for their vote to truly be counted. Mm-hmm. It puts the U.S. in a position where you're no better than China. The, the, yeah, the place that you critique, because at least with China, they're open mm-hmm. about it, right? They tell you like, mm-hmm. hey, this is a a one-party system um, mm-hmm. and you can deal with that. I think that the people who are championing the Supreme Court don't understand that you're becoming China faster than China is becoming you. Um, and the thing, and, yeah. the thing I want to talk about, the thing I want to interject, because I've talked to people who live in China, right, for my show, the thing they always bring up about America is, you know, the thing about us is this is our system like this. We know what we're going to get. We don't need to go vote. Right. We know what we're going to get because the party's going to take care of us. Let me ask my listeners a question. Do you want to live in a world where you have to believe the party is going to take care of you? Bearing in mind that we have the largest military the world has ever seen. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's not even just the military. I think that... Yeah. What I really think... Okay, so this is kind of we're jumping ahead. But I do think it's less about the military as much as it is... I tell people this is what it's... We should really, really strongly go back to what the U.S. was like pre-World War One and, and like the Jim Crow era South. Mm-hmm. But instead of it for black people, you can have a f- effectively a scenario where it's for everyone. And I think that, that we don't talk enough about that in school. Most people haven't learned it. Um, and, and honestly, I think that consider, it's ironic considering that history is under attack, where you have effectively a state, local, and national politic that dictates everything. And the most mm-hmm. important thing, it took really over a century to really break up Jim Crow, which is something I think the average person doesn't fully understand. It took over a century. We had three major wars in that process. And then the U.S., to your point, also militarily grew, as well as its police state. Like, if you think that the U.S. can't backslide into that space, then I think that we you're gravely mistaken. Right. Um, 
and especially with independent state doctrine, like that is the mm-hmm. thing that generally is concerning that they're probably going to vote six to three on. Like, I don't see maybe John Roberts has a slight dissent, but it's still going to be enough with five, four, five, one, three. You know what I'm saying? I, like, it's still going to happen. If I had to handicap it or whatever, and I hate to use sports analogies for something. Yeah, like that's this, fine. I don't know what else to say. If I had to prognosticate what was going to happen, I would say that the the realists, the political realists on the court are going to sit there and think, you can't say that a state can go beyond its constitution. Like, you can't say that. Even though the even though the U.S. Constitution doesn't expressly say it can't, you can't. I mean, you you know what I'm saying? Like, if you yeah. they're probably going to say something to the effect of, if you want to do this, cool, but put it in your Constitution that you can do it. Right. Because here's the thing: I looked up with North Carolina, for example, and Georgia. By the way, we have it in our Constitution because you and I we live in the same state. Actually, we don't live that far apart, but the Constitution says, our state Constitution says that our electors have to go with the will of the Georgia voter. It's actually in our Constitution. I think that's not going to matter to Georgia, and that's my hot take, at least for this election. I don't think it is. Uh, If this was 2018, I think this would be more of an issue, but I don't think it's going to matter this year. I think whoever wins is going to clear by a lot. Like, yeah, but at, to your point, though, I do think it's important. And I think where this could be of a concern yeah. is not 2022, but 2024. 2024. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's like the one I'm like, we need to probably be thinking about this one like a lot because this is going to yeah. get messy real fast. Right. But also you got to think about. So I'm out here doing a podcast on COVID and I'm talking to folks all over the place. And right now, I'll tell you that there's way more people that had heart attacks than ever had heart attacks before. And they're a lot younger. And my hot take is that we don't know how many people died of COVID or whatever. Or whatever else they could have died of because they didn't go to the hospital because of COVID. Um. So that's one hot take. The other hot take is what really disturbs me about all this is that when I read the conservative take and the liberal take and the centrist take or whatever, nobody actually knows where this is going to go. Uh, I think we do. <laughs> I think we do. Oh, I uh, do. I mean, you and I do because eventually it's going to, we're going to become if you know, but I think it's, it's fascinating that this is never, if this is actually in the constitution or I should say not in the constitution, Right. It's fascinating that the court has never said this before, right? There's been, we've had ever since 1845, it's been the law of the land in this country that people have to vote. Let people vote for the president, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating to me that the Supreme Court has never weighed in on that. I think... Okay, so this is where, again, y'all be mad at me, not Ben. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, no, be mad at me, but not Ben. Please don't be mad at Ben. I think, in general, if you look at just the rise of conservatism, the rise of libertarianism, the rise of both 
this notion of originalism um, and constitutionalism. Mm. Those are all just like things that are anti-black and things that are based historically. You can be mad at me, but it's based historically at the gains of the civil rights movement and also gains, uh, the continued gains of the New Deal, and more importantly, also the women's rights movements of the 1960s and 70s, right? And so you can't get that without a backlash and a construct to do so. And I sometimes we got to have a come to Jesus moment. It's like most of the things that we're seeing now is effectively from the, the grandkids of the people who felt slighted uh, by those gains, right? And so, I mean, in real time, we can look at when the Federalist Society was founded, when the Heritage Foundation was uh, founded. Some of these really large think tanks and regressive think tanks that are and even ALEC, right? Uh, the organization that helps pass a lot of laws and draft up laws. Almost all of these are like some version of an organization that felt like the government went too far in establishing rights for these people or establishing rights in the case of the New Deal for just all people, right? And so when you get back to this point, that's why I said we need to go back to the Jim Crow South and really think about, for your listeners who aren't Black, think about how many rights on the state, federal, and national level, as well as how many opportunities were not existent, right? You had a system of laissez-faire capitalism. You had a sense of really a reduced social safety net federally, right? Mm -hmm. And you also had a reduced um, regulatory state for businesses, especially like things about the environment, especially like uh, the health and safety of workers. We we forget often about the labor, uh, the history of labor in the United States. and what that means as well. So I do think we should look back to the Jim Crow South and think about what happens when people effectively did not have their right to vote. On paper, they should have been, but you have all these restrictions to do that. People should have the right to clean and safe uh, neighborhoods, clean and safe water, clean and safe work sites, clean and safe communities. Mm-hmm. And if somebody did violate that, at least you had a government that you could report to and they could effectively penalize or or institute something to stop companies from doing things. And I think that that's closer to what we're going to be at. And you also had a police state that effectively harassed a single group of people. And by doing that, it effectively creates a new caste system in America. Uh, yes, don't get me wrong, black people are still at the bottom of that caste. But the caste system that comes out of Jim Crow really affects what we even what we consider who are white at this point in time, especially in the Northeast. It also creates what do we consider poor? What do we consider um, things of poverty and violence and what do we consider even crimes like the number of crimes that actually are designated crimes uh, throughout the Jim Crow South Grove like you have pre-civil war and like that's the thing we're thinking about we're going to have effectively a police state for everyone else and open and rugged capitalism for everyone else but no protections for the everyday person across the board as well as a yeah. large like removal of state level influence and federal level influence for the average person for ba- basic things that tells people all the time it shouldn't matter if you're left right or center everyone should have a right to a clean and safe community a clean and safe environment and if you're reducing mm-hmm. that and reducing the size of federal government you've only enshrined power with the most likely people who can now dictate what's going to happen next and i think that that is really where yeah. we could be going and as a u.s i think what happens when you have everyone is living like the jim crow south and you have effectively 330 million serfs and 30 million, you know, rulers like that. That's not really what you want to be at, because that was closer to like black people, the Jim Crow South. And that could be the, the future of the U.S. altogether. Well, then, and that's that's what concerns me. What what concerns me is not. Well, that concerns me. And I don't want to say that straight out. But what concerns me more than that is that that would be a transitory state to a political revolution. 
Oh, for sure. And, and that that is what concerns me the most is because I had, you know, I've been studying the French Revolution, etc. And the thing that all these revolutions, the thing that spurs them on are these people that, that realize, okay, our current system of government simply doesn't work and we need to violently fix it. <laughs> yeah, I think that is something yeah. I've been thinking about a lot. Like, And I think that the U.S., what we would have is because of both just the size of the U.S., the media in the U.S. and the location of certain things. Effectively, you won't have one revolution like the French Revolution. Like France is like what the size of you know Texas. It's a little yeah. sm- It's smaller yeah. than Texas, basically. But right. Yeah. So that's like a very contained thing in a very contained state. Effectively, you would have a, a series of problem. Yeah, a series of smaller revolutions and smaller takeovers constantly on a state that's bigger. And then you have this other thing where you have potential secession of certain states. Yeah, if we want to get and, into that, I've thought about this a lot. Like that could be really awful. Like across, really. Well, I think the problem is like the main problem in this country right now. I mean, there's a lot of problems, but one of those structural issues is. So I keep saying we have the second or third largest economy in the world. Well, most of that second or third largest economy on Earth exists in 131 counties. Yeah, and that's the problem. <laughs> you know. That's actually the issue to me. Right. How, how do you spread that around? Yeah. you And this is the thing. I know a lot of concerns like you need a strong federal government for the protection of people. And I know they don't mm. like that. Because the reason why they don't like that is effectively it. A lot of conservatives I talk to feel as if the federal government restricts their rights, but not thinking how it restricts the rights or the opportunity access for others. And then they kind of always default to like the rugged the rugged individualist comments where I did this, I did that. I, you know, I, 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 me, 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 my space, my space. Um, and don't see the forest from the trees. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no one has benefited more from the regulatory state than the average white person in America. And like, that's the thing we don't like, we got to start putting two and two together. Well, you got to think about, I mean, for example, the interstate system was a government program. Um, what's another one? Um, the power, <laughs> the electrical power, was a government program. Um, you know, um, on and down, you know, down the, the post office. <laughs> you know? Right, the post office. Another thing, like, and I think that's a that's a good. We can we're gonna take a side on this one, but I do think the post office is kind of where we are now. Like, you have this whole history of something that exists. The post office predates the founding of the United States, right? Ben Franklin mm-hmm. is the first mm-hmm. postmaster general. And mm-hmm. even before the U.S. became the U.S., you have this notion of the U.S. needs a national system of correspondence, a national system of communication that can go from both the government to the military to the average person within a decent amount of time. And I think people don't really understand how important that is for a functioning democracy. Or a functioning period. society that spans right. the continent. I mean, you know... Like, yeah, it's like the thing like that, but we've seen since Richard Nixon, like the 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 slow demolishing and the slow reduction mm-hmm. of the influence and power of what um, the post office could do. People forget about this. Postal banking was something that was ended in Richard Nixon, but we talk about things like the underbanked access to capital for poor people. Um, I've heard even, of, excuse me, I've heard yeah. of postal banking, 
but I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? So postal banking was effectively banking services that existed um, to help the average person. So everything from like we still use it now in the sense of money orders. It's a guaranteed backing of the federal government. Um, mm. And it was started under William Howard Taft, who was the president of the United States. Um, mm. And what that effectively did was it had certain things it, you can get short. You could they issued short term fixed bonds. Um, mm. They also were able to hold deposits. They also mm. were able to do like, like we said, money orders. You know that in addition to the mm. post office box. And I know that seems very strange, but like if we go back to the 1930s and 40s when the Postal Service is really making real changes, considering about half of the U.S. was in like these really industrialized, like dirty spaces, you may not have had access to a bank. You may not have had even access to your building. If you live in a building, that building may have had just one postal box or if if the owner wanted to have only 10, you know. 10 PO, I mean, 10 internal units for postage, you had to go somewhere to get your postage, right? We don't think about this now. So it would make sense that, hey, I'm, you know, Ben, you're coming from South Georgia, you're moving to Washington, DC. You don't know anyone there, you don't have a place, but you know, you can get a post office box. And in that post office box, you can also have a bank account where you can deposit money and it is insured by the federal government that your money will be there. Mm. That is like revolutionary. And also it has bonds. So people want to buy into things like um, you could do so. And also, mm-hmm. it, especially for rural Americans, this was actually more important. You could send money, like we think about Western Union now, but you could also send money to your family for a very low discount, typically lower than what Western Union or a bank or another financial institution to do. So mm-hmm. it served as a, a bypass to like a thing where now what we have in this system, effectively, you have what 50 million people underbanked or not banked at all in the US, where, you know, that's yeah. why check cash in places exist right now. Like it's in, we have unlike, and payday loans and things like that because mm-hmm. before the government i know some people say well now nah, it should just be all rugged individualism but that doesn't really work when you have a certain number of people when you reach scale you need something that is a certified place right. for people to have things um mm-hmm. and so and also this also kind of overla- overlaps with the, the rise of the fdic and the one thing that they mess up on um mm-hmm. the fdic the federal deposit insurance commission which it also gave a guarantee to depositors and private banks. Um, and so before you had a guarantee that if you went to the bank, you know, Ben's bank account and postal box is there, you know, it's guaranteed. You can put your money in, you pay your money for whatever service you need, blah, blah, blah. Once the average person realized then like, oh, the FDIC was created. So now I can also deposit my money in a private bank. And I have the guarantee that the bank will still have the money in there if a depression happens again, which is the other thing that's happened. Like the reason why we have a large regulatory state is because of depression and rugged capitalism didn't work. Right. And so people then started going back to uh, private banks knowing that, oh, okay, if I put my money here, the post office is only X number of locations, but Wells Fargo, if I'm living in California is in 12 versus, you know, two for my local post office, nothing bad. The post office is just closer. Right. And so that also undid it. But Richard Nixon did a lot more. But postal banking and the postal service system um, and the post office really served as especially rural Americans and people who were poor or immigrants. It was that initial Mm -hmm. safety net to transition. And I think that one of the things that I I really get on the libertarians about is that the regulatory state that was created in FDR and then held on from Truman and then even uh, Eisenhower from the 30s through the 50s was one that built the middle class. And what I mean build the middle class, it's stuff like this, right? The, the Great Depression, mm-hmm. all those people who had their money in those banks lost that money. They didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And so if you had your money in the post office, though, you were fine. 
if you had your money, uh, then when it became backed by the FDIC and some of the other New Deal programs, you were fine. So like we're going to mm-hmm. a point now where it could be effective, like you said, not, not necessarily revolution, but if you start undoing the state and all these things and moving into private accounts, I don't think people understand that a private account's incentive is to grow the institution and its shareholders. Like it's not to you versus the government, which is to ensure that there is safety for the everyday person who uses something. Like they have two very fundamentally different things. Right. And we could be going to that really fast. I'm sorry. I know we're talking about banking and postal banking. I know that's crazy, but uh, no, it's not. It's important. important. I mean, this is, this is an important conversation to have. And the reason I was saying revolution is, it strikes me that we're sleepwalking back towards the Articles of Confederation. Yeah. Which, I don't know, you know what that is. I know you know what that is. Yeah. But that's where you have each state essentially be its own sovereign country, which, you know, the way That works out fine. Exactly. Way back in 17-whatever, people thought, okay, this cannot work because you're going to have... You had uh, states exercising tariffs on other states. You had um, you had a state. You had states where they weren't um, like I had an ancestor, for example, who got married in one state, and then he got a divorce and he moved, and the other state didn't recognize his divorce. So, because they didn't recognize divorces, for example. Yeah. I mean, and just imagine that now. I mean, honestly. Yeah, and I think that this is the thing about the Supreme Court, and I really do think that, while I'm not a fan of packing the court because it just effectively becomes like a never-ending game or a repressive game where this could go really bad really fast, I do think we should have a strong come-to-Jesus moment about either limiting the power of the Supreme Court or really figuring out how does the Supreme Court avoid creating these scenarios once again. Um, and I think, I, do I th- mean, yeah, yeah, I'm against packing the Supreme Court uh, under most circumstances because exactly, it's, it becomes a game of chicken, essentially. Um, why can't we just have a, I'm with you, why can't we just have a come to Jesus moment? And <laughs> Yeah, because we have to understand that you're not going to have everything you want, but we, the U S I think right now should be doing the exact opposite of what the courts are doing, which is we should be ensuring that the rights of everyone is as secure and as safe as it's ever been versus going the exact opposite direction. Um, I think Mm -hmm. also too, one of the things that they don't do is I think term limits are important, right? Across every judgeship um, period. Like uh, we don't have to really get into what that means, but when it comes to the functioning democracy also, we should have a couple things that just makes it more transparent. One of which is when the Supreme Court is actually hearing cases, just having cameras in the place at the time. The other is when a Supreme Court issues a ruling that you have people who are like historians, both constitutional scholars, Supreme Court scholars, and people who are actually historians, like especially like when I was reading the opinion that Clarence Thomas wrote about the gun case in New York, like he was deliberately misrepresenting Plessy versus Ferguson, which is something Bush did back when he was, uh, I think running the second time for office like Bush too. But like you need to have some people there to be like, no, this is incorrect, right? So if you're going to issue this opinion, this part needs to be thrown out altogether because this is actually incorrect or you're generally misleading. 
Um, I think the Senate, actually, it's either the House or the Senate employs a, they employ a person, I forget what the word is, but it's like, these are the rules of the Senate, these are the rules of the Senate as they stand today. Right? Yeah. I forget what the word is for that job. But there's I'm not sure. You talking about Senate parliamentarian or something like that? I think that's the word for it. But there's somebody that says these are the rules of the Senate as they stand today. Yeah, that would. I want to say the Senate parliamentarian. Yeah. yeah. Um, but don't listen, y'all. Yeah, that is the Senate parliamentarian. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. But yeah, that's who, and that's like have real things about it. The other thing is right now with the Supreme Court with some of these cases too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more versus Harper as we go back to that and all these other things that are about to be effectively undone is things like independent state doctrine, originalism, and some of the other BS that they're kind of drafting now with their opinions. We have, I think it's time also to start considering maybe the Supreme Court, both the judges and their nominations and their entire history of political donation, political organizing, political activism should be more scrutinized. And also, like, where their real jurisprudence is, like, to have a standard, like, hey, you shouldn't be on the court. Like, period. I know that people don't like that. But if you want a really centrist, independent court, and you also want a court that's not necessarily dominated like it is by these kind of religious and quasi-non-intellectual judges, like, in the case of the six that we have, it's going to have a different kind of standard appointed to it. Because right now, it's really just, like, Ben's the president. He picks me to be his thing. I may be a good pick for it, but like, let's say I believe in killing dolphins or something, right? Like maybe I should not, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like if I believe that, like, that's a thing and that's a problem, we should probably like have yeah. that known, you know? Right. Um, Cause it's like, those things matter. Like, and it's, it's yeah. ironically the thing that people are getting mad about with critical race theory, but that is actually by definition something you would actually do in critical race theory. It's it's fascinating. So one of the things, one of the central problems that I think our country has, or just situations, is you're expecting people, or you always expected people, ever since you know popular sovereignty or whatever. But you're expecting people with a high school education to know about, um, to know why the you know rogue legislature doctrine would put us into a very different condition than we are today and why that might be a bad idea do you see what i'm saying right no i agree i mean (laughs) i mean i i think i was blessed in that i went to a public school that had very good teachers to teach people civics right and I just think we need to somehow get back to that. You need to somehow, there's, I keep going back to this with this. There is a reason why the Supreme Court never touched this until today. And this is the Rehnquist Court, you know, this is, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's a reason why these super right wing conservative Supreme Courts never went this far until now. Yeah, you can't go far unless you know you have the votes, right? And I think that the one thing, yeah. I'm not going to celebrate John Roberts because this man undid voting rights and, you know, I, he's not a hero. And uh, that's what concerns me is he has a track record for doing this. Yeah, like, but, 
it's in my opinion that the Supreme Court should be all it should be nine neutral people. And I think it should be rotated like you do every four years. But like in a like Germany has a good example of you have a, like either you serve 12 years or you've reached a 16 and you're off the court. Right. Um, and I do think that the U S could do something similar to that. And that's what I mean by like every four years, you should have three new justices on every justice should be vetted to the, uh, to the degree to which all of these things matter, including what organization nominated, what foundation nominated, what media publications and how large your amplification was about this particular person. So you think about the Kavanaugh and the Gorsuch and especially Amy Comey Bear adherence. Um, mm. How much that, I think you should just have a, a different level of detail with this. And also because the Supreme court is always about precedent. Is this person going to overrule a precedent based on what they've already done, which I think in many mm. cases would probably remove most of the conservative Supreme court justice with the exception, of maybe John Roberts. And I bring this up for a particular reason. Amy Comey Barrett, it's probably the least qualified on that entire thing, right? Versus like Katanji Brown. We're talking like prior to actually getting on the court. Mm-hmm. In terms of all the cases that Katanji Brown seen, all the her seats on the court level, all the different levels of, of judgeship that she's had beforehand versus Amy Coney Bear, who's just effectively who got a law degree and clerked for someone and became a law professor. There should be a certain level of this person has served as a judge in lower cases before this person has either served as a prosecutor. Um, before or defense attorney, this person has experience in the field of law, in or at real least time. in the field of writing law or something, yeah. or executing you law do the, or yeah. something. Because like even like Clarence yeah. Thomas, like a lot of people weren't qualified for the job that they eventually got, and so then when you can have idealism through these courts, you have the situation we're in now, right? Like I said, mm-hmm. I think if that was the case, and then also too, if. And if something happened like what Mitch McConnell did, where he effectively took the last pick away from Obama, it still doesn't change. It's still probably 5-4. Um, but mm. if anyone does what Mitch McConnell does, like up, like stops the judicial process to to get a judge confirmed, they should be automatically removed from their position. Like like mm. what he did in that last year, the Obama's uh, term. And then also what he did to help push through Amy Comey Bear, which is like, we're going to push through a judgeship on someone within 30 days for a lifelong position that person should also be let go as well like you got to have real penalties for that and in a backsliding democracy one side is really happy because they're getting what they want the other side is like okay we're not going to eventually take this line down i think that that's the thing that the republicans don't understand is well and what, what i don't think the republicans understand is this the people that are not going to take it lying down, you're not talking about the quote rabble. You're talking about consider a world where, so not the 1%, right? But maybe the top 20% of earners suddenly had no say in the government, right? At all. Yeah. How long do you think that could happen before something happened? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you can't exist in the Middle Ages anymore. You just can't. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're dancing, or not you and me, but society, is dancing around this perpetual problem of, okay, let's just pretend we're going to do originalism from here on out. 
Okay, let's just pretend that this is what happens. Um, should we have a new constitution? <laughs> so should we have a new constitution? Okay, so this is actually gets into the Supreme Court thing is whether or not you think this, the, the constitution is a living document or you think it is a static document. And I think originalism will always go back to what the original intent was, which effectively is a way to undo the other 10, only keep the Bill of Rights with the most part and get rid of the other uh, amendments. Right. It's in my opinion, if you're going to have a democracy, that the democracy should be changing, right? Other countries change their constitutions all the time. And I do think that because, this is my opinion now, because okay. the constitution has changed and we've had these amendments on the constitution, that therefore the constitution is a document that lives with the people. If we didn't, we would only have those first 10 in the Bill of Rights and nothing else, which is something a lot of originalists and a lot of like this new conservative Supreme Court is trying to undo. And I do think that that's a serious problem uh, to get back to only what the 10 things. And then it also leaves a lot of gray areas to what is or isn't supported by law. And then you can just kind of cherry pick in, in your POV and what should and shouldn't be acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of changing the, the Constitution, we already have done it. Like, you know, like it's not anything I, new. The last I time we did it was in 92. So I just think we got to be serious about it. If we're going to change the Constitution now, we haven't done it in 30 years. What do we want the Constitution? What do we want to add to the Constitution to keep democracy going? And it's going to piss off a lot of Republicans at the time. But hopefully enough Republicans also realize, like, it's one thing to be going through this current phase of power grabs that they're going. But the long-term brand of the United States requires that we be the United States, not mm. a series of... 1700s loose confederations of, of people with policies and effectively it's like small middle middle medieval fiefdoms right and i think exactly. that's what a lot of people are trying to go back to like fiefdoms don't work in a space that's this big and it doesn't work for where we're going like you can't tribalism is dead and we have to be a people a united people and a united people means that we have elections that are fair and open and that sometimes your party loses and also that we have a court system that is fair and balanced and a judicial and a, a, an overall rather federal system that protects the people and not just a select group of people who have already had the power, but like for everyone. Right. So and I think a lot of people talk about this, especially a lot of libertarians bring this up about the civil rights movement, that um, the civil rights movement was bad and that private markets individuals should have made their own decisions. The reason why that didn't make any sense is because we had literally a century of that where people did make their decision. And that decision was to effectively keep black people as second class citizens or enslaved. Right. And let's so there's, let's remember that there's actually a Supreme court case. I forget the name of it right now, but there's a Supreme court case that says you and I can actually eat together in the same restaurant. Right. You know, like we, that had to actually happen. I mean, that's um, a case that actually went down and I think it actually happened because of something in Atlanta. Um, so that's odd, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, are you talking about the one about the motel? Atlanta motel. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's the thing too. And even you as like mm. a white man, right? So like this was mm. 200 years ago, you still may have been in Georgia, but you still may not have even had the right to vote. Right. You know? Yeah. And like, cause you weren't necessarily, if you're a property owner, you went through all the requirements mm. and mm. you were of a certain social caste, like you probably wouldn't have been able to vote. Um, and that's right. just not where we need to be going today. And I don't think, and here's what, here's my observation slash concern. 
I don't think people understand what you're saying. Like, not that they don't understand what you're saying, but they don't understand the end game. Like, they don't yeah. understand where this could go. I don't right? think, I think they do, but they don't think it's going to happen to them. Which is the um, thing that happens in every type of either fascism or backsliding democracies or dictatorships. It's always right. like, well, this, it, it's going to need to happen. It needs to happen to the blacks and Democrats so they don't vote right. Or it needs to happen because they stole the election, right? And so because it's always like them, they never understand that that finger that they're pointing at has three coming back and eventually it will come back to you. So, or, you know, or this, yeah. and it also gets into like a broader thing about like historically, like white Americans just have not done well with like any perceived loss of control. And this is also something we didn't want to, I didn't want to bring up because it is an awful thing to bring up. But historically speaking, we're going to look at Reconstruction, and we're also going to look at right right before World War One. So those restrictions, like everything from the narrative of voter ID, voter integrity, reducing the number of people who need to go to vote, the, reducing the political representation of people, is historically based in whenever it's like the usual white dominant political party loses, and it's usually the most regressive. I'm not going to say liberal or conservative, but the most regressive. And so in the South, that would have been like, basically every Southern white for the most part. There were some radical Republicans in the South by the early 1900s, but most of them had died out or like just didn't become active as a political party. And in the Reconstruction era, oftentimes the most regressive white people the Southern Democratic Party, and yes, they did switch, switch by the 1960s, so please stop saying stupid shit on the internet when I hear people say that. But the white Southern Democratic Party was the most regressive, right? And they also had the most votes. They also had the most media infrastructure and the most political sway. And it, this is what happened time and time again from really the 1870s and through about the early 1900s, which is three things. One, deny black people the right to vote because they were typically the ones, historically speaking, black people have typically voted against the, the general wishes of the white, the larger white community at large. And the reason being oftentimes both Jim Crow in the South and then also just the, the segregation of like the North and the Midwest produce a different class. System. I, I know I brought that up before about how we get to even who's considered white. And so in the Midwest during this whole, like the century or so of Jim Crow, you have this notion of like immigrants, both Irish and Italian and other people coming to America again, um, effectively over time become white because they are able to participate in other aspects of, of mm. society that black people just didn't have still, even being in the North and the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And in the South, in the Jim Crow South, you have an outright discrimination of black people stopping them from voting, reducing their um, voting blocks, sometimes just denying them the outright ability to, to take office, um, as well as allowing local municipalities to then create their own judgments and and on the state and the local level which effectively kept white people at a very specific social caste and Mm -hmm. i do think this is something we need we need to bring up more because while everyone's sharing the supreme court like oh they're going to stop abortions like no they're not they're not going to stop abortion they're going to stop at 1850 and when you have a court system that can do that, you have a police system that's going to enforce what the courts are saying, and then you have a National Guard system which is going to influence, I mean, uh, uphold things that the courts are saying, both on the state and the federal level, you've gotten what you wanted, right? You've reduced the power of the Constitution, you've reduced the amendments or outright banned them, or you've undone previous cases, which means now you have the state that a lot of like the industrialists who 
have now been associated with a lot of these regressive laws and judges have won it, which is effectively a regulatory free state. And again, everyone in America thinks that's okay with them because they're going to be a millionaire. They're going to date a supermodel. They're going to drive a Ferrari and they're going to be able to live in free and how they want to. Right. right. That's not really what's going to actually happen. Um, and even certain things that we think about in, in a functioning democracy of the 1850s thing is when you have effectively a court system that's designed with one point of view or a specific point of view, you could still be an inherent to that and still lose. And I bring this up a lot because, again, um, both mm-hmm. Reconstruction and the Jim Crow era South, you had a lot of white people who liked the system, what they had, right? They kept blacks out the way. They kept them segregated in societies, but they also, they needed, especially you talk about like the white Southern labor movements, mm. they oftentimes went against, when it then became issues of them getting, you know, rights or payments or safety and protection against the same people they had typically voted for in, in the elections prior, they became um, on the receiving end a lot of that brutality from either from police or a lot of like the legal ramifications of having a, a state tilted in one direction. But mm-hmm. it's hard for people to do that in America because so much about sticking it to the libs or sticking it to the blacks or sticking it to the others that they don't understand they've willingly walked in there would be oppressors to having control once again. And that's like the the, the most dumbfounding thing about this. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, we, we have, yeah. yeah, I just think about that. Like, oh God, especially 1920s through the 1940s, you have so many labor cases involving what we now consider, and I say now because I wanted to bring that up again, mm. various groups of white people suing other white-owned businesses, white-owned uh, uh, industrialists, mm. white-owned, you know, um, political and social kind of heavyweights, especially from the 20s through the, the 40s, that if we didn't have, like, the World War One and World War II, we probably would have had an outright revolution, especially a labor-based one then. Yeah. Um, and that's just something I think people, we don't do a good job of understanding our history, which is like, as you strip away rights, your rights will be stripped away. It's I not think, just them, it's you too. Yeah, I think actually, I think you're right. I think part of the deal is we do a terrible job of making sure people understand history. Terrible yeah. job. and. That shows up in all sorts of ways that have nothing to do with or little to do with race relations or just anything. Um, You know, that's one thing. The other thing is like talking about this EPA decision. There's a story that that an old man that I used to know used to tell me about his dad. And he lived up in Cleveland. His him and his father lived up in Cleveland at the time. And his father, I forget if he was a fireman or a homicide detective. But the story was that Lake Erie used to catch fire. Yes. The The mistake on the lake. Yep. The actual lake used to catch fire. And the the locals or the police or the fire, whoever it was, they understood like if the fire was one way, that was you needed to call the police because somebody was trying to burn a body. And if the fire was the other way, behave the other way it was like you needed to call the fire department because oh that's just the lake catching fire (laughs) but i mean that's what we're talking about with the end of the regulatory state or the rolling back of it um but yeah right yeah well thank you um thank you so much for coming on a saturday afternoon 
Um, where do you think it is going to stop? Because I agree. I think unchecked, I think it would go back to 17-something. I don't even think 1850. I think 17-something as far as, like, the we're 50 different countries under the same roof. But what do you think... Uh, what do you think would stop it? <laughs> uh, this is not an endorsement for the particular party because I think they're doing a lot of things wrong. The Democrats have to be the Democrats of FDR and not the Democrats of Joe Biden, uh, which is we're going to do things that our opposition in particular, and this is now when I want to use the word conservative because that's really when conservative politics really, really starts in the U.S. Like We have people who are conservative before that, but like really, which is, we're going to do things on behalf of the people. We're going to strengthen the social safety net. We're going to strengthen the overall infrastructure of the country. We're going to do this knowing that you're going to kick and scream. We're going to do this knowing that the in the case of FDR, at first he didn't have the Congress on his, mm-hmm. he's never had the Congress during his entire run, which I think is some people should know. Uh, but we're going to do this with, a, a in this case now, the Supreme Court and maybe next year Congress not doing it but we're going to be very aggressive about protecting everyone's liberties and even if you don't like it right now we're going to also be very aggressive to think fdr was kind of didn't do which kind of leads into even how this conservative media ecosystem today is we're going to be very intentional about correcting deliberate mistakes deliberate disinformation deliberate malinformation and the companies actors and agencies that are doing so and i know the conservatives are like we're censoring this when you start putting out deliberately bad propaganda, when you deliberately allow your people to start putting out misleading things or just things that are generally insightful, I'm not non-insightful or inciting violence, inciting anger and hatred, we're going to have to check you because Sri Lanka is going through a revolution right now as we're speaking. I'm not even joking. In real time now, you can see mm. what happens um, when mm. you allow people to just start feeding misinformation or in the case of Sri Lanka, when people aren't getting what they need from the, the leadership and they, they take over the country. Like then now as of what is it, two o'clock in the afternoon, protesters have now taken over like the the president's um their leaders like compound. And so we don't want the US to be that, but we can't have that if we have one half of the country deliberately creating a whole new narrative or creating judgments on a whole new narrative. So be the FDR version of the Democrats, not the Joe Biden, which is like way more passive, way more it's going to be all right. They're not going to do this thing and be like, FDR. no, they're going to do this thing. So we're going to punch back and we're going to punch much harder than they do. And we're going to think about the U S is like, the U S needs to be here a hundred years from now. And it's not going to be here a hundred years from now because the people who are coming in now are going to have some version of the Confederate States of America, not the United mm-hmm. States of America. So it's not ideal. It's right. not an endorsement for the Democrats, but it is like one party has to be clear that we got to, keep the United States, the United States. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think, I think you're a hundred percent right about on that. I, I think that a lot of the people like, like I keep saying, I think a lot of the people that might be for the, even some of the powerful people who might actually be for the rogue legislature doctrine, when it, when the rubber hits the road, I don't think they will be because things are going to, like imagine, for example, uh, not even voting. Like imagine, for example, there's a um, your legislature can just decide that it's going to just control your state, for example. Which is if they go the one direction, is something they could do. Um, 
I mean, you know. But anyway, thank you. Um, thank you so much, and have a pleasant Saturday. Did you? Have oh yeah, I hope I answered some of the questions. I know we went off on a few tangents, but I hope so. No, I, this was this was great, and thank you. I I really really want to thank you uh, for coming on. Um, and like I said, either up top or somewhere in our conversation, what what is kind of scary is nobody really knows. At least none of the observers really know how this is going to go once the rubber hits the road. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, and have a pleasant day. Just hang on with me for a second. Down okay, sure, Mike.